Hey everyone, welcome to the fifth episode of the Liam McCollum Show. Today we're going to have a really cool guest on, Sergeant Dan McKnight of Bring Our Troops Home. We're going to talk about the Defend the Guard Act that's been making its way through a bunch of state legislatures across the country. We're going to be talking about the Tenth Amendment, war powers, and bringing the powers back to Congress, as well as the Afghanistan war and the current status of foreign policy in our country. McKnight served in the U.S. Marine Corps Reserves, three years active duty with the U.S. Army, and then 10 years with the Idaho Army National Guard stationed at Gowan Field in Boise, including a one-year deployment to Afghanistan in 2006. This will be one of two podcasts that will be released this week. Um, I plan on continuing to release a bunch throughout the next few months. I have a couple guests planned out for the future, but if if you have any suggestions or if you have any advice, please reach out. But yeah, I hope you enjoy. How are you, Dan? How are you, Dan? Good. How you doing? I'm doing great. Um, thanks for coming on. Uh, I wanted to talk about bring our troops home and a little bit about your background and everything. Can you can you start with what the mission of bring our troops home is and um, give your background as well? Absolutely. Um, so bring our troops home is a is a uh, right of center um, organization. So it's veterans that are conservative in nature um, who are trying to support President Trump's efforts to fulfill his campaign promise to end the forever wars in Afghanistan and Yemen, Syria and Iraq and bring our troops home. And our organization specifically is pushing um, to return to a constitutional principle that before any troops, uh, American military is committed to fight in a war overseas that um, Congress first does their job and declares war, which is required under Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution. And uh, we feel that that responsible foreign policy and that proper declaration would allow uh, for proper oversight and a clearly defined mission, which would keep us from fighting in, in endless and forever wars. And uh, my, my background is that I'm a, I'm a 13-year veteran of the military. I was in the Marine Corps Reserves, uh, I then transferred into the active duty Army, and then came back to Idaho and served in the Idaho Army National Guard while I was finishing up my, my, my college. And uh, I got out of the Guard right before September 11th happened and uh, rejoined immediately after the, the attacks on September 11th because I knew um, that the Idaho military and the members of uh, the National Guard were gonna be called on and uh, to go overseas and, and uh, fight in a war that had just been um, waged against us. And uh, I did that in 2005 through 2007. I was in Afghanistan and in, in RC East, which is the northeastern corner of the country, deep in the Hindu Kush Mountains, uh, Pesh River Valley. And it was while I was there as a member of the Idaho Army National Guard um, in Afghanistan that we were we were treated, we were assigned to the 82nd Airborne and the 10th Mountain Division. But nobody really wanted to claim us because we were guardsmen and they they thought we were part-time soldiers. And so we were having a really, really hard time negotiating the supply system and, and getting the things we needed, like replacement boots and uniforms, safety equipment like goggles and body armor and helmets. And out of frustration with my own chain of command and with the supply system, I, I, as a non-commissioned officer, I knew I needed to take care of my guys. And so I grabbed a satellite phone uh, deep in the Pesh River Valley and climbed to the top of a little hill where I could get a clear signal. And I called a friend of mine who was able to put me in touch uh, with our governor back in Idaho, who was the commander in chief of the Idaho National Guard as part of his position. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, it was through that connection, uh, he actually answered, and it was a gentleman named Jim Risch. And I said, Governor Risch, I said, this is Dan McKnight, and I'm calling you from Afghanistan, and I'm one of your Idaho National Guardsmen that's serving in combat. I hope I have your attention. And he said, yeah, Dan, you've got my attention. What can I do for you? And I went on to explain to him what was going on, and, and he stopped me, and he goes, Dan, he goes, I've, I've only been the governor for a minute. He had just been taken over as the governor on an interim basis uh, because our, our governor had gone to Washington, D.C. to work in the Bush administration. So Rish says, I've only been governor for a minute. He goes, I don't know what I can do, but I'm going to do something. And uh, I thanked him for his time. I hung up the phone and uh, went back to work. And 48 hours later, I received a phone call from my chain of command, my higher ups, my officers, telling me that uh, our supplies were on their way. And then they promptly took away my satellite phone and told me never to do that again. <laughs> and so I always held Jim Rish up on this uh, pedestal um, as someone that supported the military, uh, which he truly does, and that you know he was a patriot and he believed in the mission, and he would do whatever the troops needed him to do. Well, you fast forward to 2019, and Governor Rich is now Senator Rich, and he's one of the most powerful men in the Senate. He serves as the chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, so he's the second most powerful man in the country, behind the President of the United States when it comes to making and enforcing and creating foreign policy. And so when I saw that he became the chairman last January, I thought, you know what, I've had a relationship with him in the past and he did a good job and he, he honored his word. And I, you know, I held him up on this pedestal. I thought, I'm gonna ask Jim Rich one more time uh, for his help. I'd grown tired of the war and I'd seen the follies of being there and I'd seen the atrocities that were committed. And you know, I, I was tired of seeing my friends go back over and over and over and over and over again, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 deployments. So I, I, did, I didn't know how to get a hold of a senator. I knew how to get a hold of a governor. You know, he lives and works right down the street. But a senator, I decided to contact him by writing a guest opinion. Um, and, and I submitted it to the newspapers here in Idaho. And it was picked up by nine newspapers. And the guest opinion basically said, you know, Senator Risch is the chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. What circumstances would you require in order to support bringing our troops home and, and honoring the president of the United States wishes to, to do that? And, uh, and then I went to a public meeting where he was at speaking and uh, I, I asked him a question publicly. I said the same thing and he stopped me right in the middle of my question. And he said, Dan, I, I remember you from 2005. Um, you know, thank you for your service. I remember you and I read your guest opinion and he goes, I want you to know I agree. We should not be nation building. He goes, in fact, he goes, we are done nation building with me as the chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. That's my position. And I thought, wow, this is easy. You know, I did my job as a citizen. I. I, I went to my, my elected representatives uh, for a redress of my concerns, and he, he heard me and he agrees. Well, Jim Risch got on an airplane and went back to Washington, D.C., and three times over the next couple months, he voted to extend the war in Yemen, Afghanistan, and Syria indefinitely, three different votes. And so I thought, you know what, we need to do something more to put pressure on him uh, and act in a way that I think deep down he holds as a, as a fundamental principle, but he's just not acting that way in D.C., and that's how Bring Our Troops Home was organized, uh, was out of that frustration and desire to end the war. Right. And it, it seems that a lot of uh, veterans have this same exact frustration. But I'm, I'm reading here, uh, President Donald Trump vetoed a bipartisan resolution calling for the immediate withdrawal of troops from Yemen. And Rish voted against that same resolution. Um, even though the president made this promise in his campaign, uh, what what are you guys trying to do? Um, I mean, because it seems it seems that he hasn't followed through. Um, what are you guys trying to do locally 
to, I guess, uh, follow through with their, their mission. Sure. Yeah, so that, that resolution on Yemen, um, he did veto it. It did pass both houses, uh, it passed the House and the Senate. Um, the only people that, that I would say are from the right that voted against that were people that are stalwarts on, on, on this non-intervention, proper foreign policy, like Mike Lee from Utah and Rand Paul from Kentucky. Uh, but it did go to his desk, President Trump's desk, and we were disappointed that he vetoed it. But um, it, that resolution was created as a political ploy. It was a way to uh, for the Democrats to, to attempt to castrate the president and take away his authority to wage a war that was already started that he inherited. Mm-hmm. And so while I disagree with his vetoing it, I understand why he did, because Washington is so divided. It's so tribal right now that nothing is as it appears on face value. So. Right. Because of that frustration, the way things are in Washington, that's why we've come back to the state level and decided to wage our our efforts here um, at the state level with our representatives that live in our neighborhoods, that go to our churches, whose children attend the same schools. And so all across the country in states, um, we've got representatives that are working for us with legislation that we, we've um, titled uh, Defend the Guard. And what this is, it's it's a it's a bill. It's a very simple bill in Idaho. It's only like 28 lines of text. It's very short. It's very clean. Um, but if passed, it would require that before the National Guard or the state militia um, is turned over to Title 10 and sent um, as an active duty element to fight in overseas combat operations or wars, that before that can happen, Congress has to do their job first and declare war which makes it a constitutional, um, constitutionally sound war. Right. So if, if, if Congress won't do their job and put their name on the line, then they shouldn't be asking the men and women of the National Guard to do their job and put their boots on the ground. And uh, the bill has kind of picked up steam. It started in West Virginia with Delegate Pat McGeehan. Um, it, it eventually lost in a, in a, um, a vote where they were, it, was a, it was a parliamentary kind of a hack job. They, they pushed it out to the floor before it had proper debate and they killed it um, after just a short debate period. In West Virginia, it died a similar death when Liz Cheney's uh, surrogates went to members of the uh, House of Representatives in in Wyoming and said that if this bill were to pass, then she would personally make sure that four C-130 aircrafts would be moved from Wyoming and sent to Texas. So she was dangling um, trinkets from the national treasure in front of lawmakers in Wyoming threatening jobs and, and economic security. Mm. And uh, it died on, a, on another introductory vote there uh, in a non-budget year. South Carolina is moving forward. Oklahoma is moving forward. Michigan is about to introduce. And then here in Idaho, where I'm at, my own representative in my district lives just a couple blocks from my house. Um, we go to the same church. But I know I've known him for a long time. I've supported all of his campaigns for a decade, including a recent run that he, he did for mayor where he got beat. Uh, but Representative Joe Palmer here is a Republican uh, with a historically um, conservative voting record. And he sits as the chairman of the Transportation and Defense Committee here in Idaho. And our bill has to go through his committee to be introduced. In Idaho, we have a, a, a process here that's fairly archaic. Before it can be introduced, before it can be talked about, before we can release the text of the bill publicly in the newspaper or even read it in the public square, the bill has to go through a committee and the committee chairman has to have it has to recommend that it be printed. Mm. So he is single-handedly blocking the bill from from being printed from somebody push, pushing the F10 button on their keyboard and sending that thing off to the Xerox machine to be printed. And he had promised us we, we would get a print hearing 
And then he, in, a, in kind of a, a, a chicken move, he sent the bill to the deputy attorney general and asked an, an aide in the governor's office what they thought about it, essentially abdicating his responsibility and his role and castrating himself as a legislator and giving his, his authority to the executive branch and a non-elected official. And those two folks came back and said that they didn't know if it was a good bill because it, it appears to have some constitutional questions that haven't been answered. And so now Representative Palmer's hiding behind that opinion, even though we strongly disagree um, because we're not trying to change or challenge the Constitution. This bill would support the Constitution. And we've got legal opinions from uh, of all organizations, believe it or not. The uh, ACLU from West Virginia has come out and endorsed this with a very strong legal argument. And uh, in fact, we're working on statements from from um, other organizations, the Veterans for Trump, which is the official re-election arm, um, veterans re-election arm of the re-elect Trump campaign, has come out with a two-page endorsement. And uh, it's it's a very popular movement. It's just you have to get the establishment folks uh, to get out of the way. And so right now our, our, our fight in Idaho is with Representative Joe Palmer, single-handedly, unilaterally, unilaterally holding up the bill. Um, do you know what they think is questionable about it? What what part of the bill are they saying isn't constitutional? Sure. And there was a, a Supreme Court case that came forward in 1990 uh, and if you were to Google it and look it up, it's called the MacArthur Amendment. And I believe it was the Minnesota National Guard. I'm not, I may not be right on the state, but I think it was Minnesota. Challenged the President of the United States uh, and the federal government when his state's National Guard was called up for their two weeks of annual training. And they were going to be sent to Panama, I believe, for two, for two weeks. Uh, and he challenged that. He said the National Guard is not to be you know, used outside of the country. They're here for the fourfold mission of the National Guard, which is to repel an invasion, to put down an insurrection, to enforce the laws of the land, and to help in a time of natural uh, disaster emergency. Mm -hmm. And so it went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled on it and came back and said that the federal government absolutely has the right to reach down into the states and move the National Guard into Title X status, which makes them active duty military, to send them overseas for training purposes only. And in the, in the decision, it says training purposes only. And so the people that are opining against this bill are using that ruling saying that clearly they meant training and combat operations. Well, we disagree. This hasn't been challenged at the Supreme Court and all nine of the justices on the Supreme Court that, that wrote in that opinion, and it was a split opinion, but all nine have been replaced. They're all gone now. And so now we're looking at four justices on the Supreme Court um, that were appointed by Clinton or Obama. We've got five that were uh, appointed by, by Bush or Trump. Um, of the four that were appointed by Democrats, three of them have significant ties to the ACLU and would surely support a position that the ACLU um, has made a sound legal um, argument for. Two of the other five uh, Trump appointees certainly are more along the lines of constitutional conservatives, mm -hmm. uh, which leaves the decision really truly in those last three justices' hands. And we feel that um, now that, that that decision, even for training, we think would come back and, and if it was uh, ruled on now, it would rule the other direction. And the Constitution is pretty clear on this. It says the states have the right to, to maintain a militia. The federal government has the right to raise an army um, in times of national defense, um, but not to the militia is the National Guard. It was defined in 1903. And so the Constitution is not even ambiguous on this. It's as clear as can be. And so we don't feel that we would have a, a real problem uh, with the Supreme Court on this. Uh, and, and ultimately, we're going to pass it in a state 
And the, the ultimate goal is to get a decision in the Supreme Court, um, which would make it, uh, you know, the, it would make it law in the entire country. We wouldn't have to go to every state to fight right. this. Right. So now I, I kind of want to talk about your experience in Afghanistan. Um, did you did you take your tour while you were in the National Guard? Yeah. So I was I was National Guard. We're a, a, um, an attack helicopter battalion. So we we, are, we have Apache helicopters and Black Hawk helicopters. And we were called up to augment, like I said, the 82nd Airborne and the 10th Mountain Division. And uh, so we went over there as guardsmen, transferred to Title 10, which makes us, you know, active duty soldiers. We just happened to wear an Idaho National Guard patch on our on our shoulder. <laughs> and that was a, uh, it was 2000, it was 18 months total. So it was like, I want to say October of 05 through February of 07. Okay. Um, and was there any experience, I, I'm reading on your website that, uh, that, you you didn't disagree with the mission while you were there, but was there any experience when, looking back in hindsight, you realized you kind of questioned what you were doing? Sure. While we were there, we were part of several different strategies. Um, I won't even call them strategies. Several different um, operational missions. Um, when we first got there, our mission was to take the fight to the enemy, to go hunt and kill anybody that aided and abetted those that attacked us on 9-11. Who can't get behind that, right? We all got behind it. Uh, but that mission changed uh, after we were there for about 90 days, and we realized that there wasn't anybody to fight. There wasn't anybody to go get. Um, we realized, you know, about a, three or four months into our mission there that everybody that had attacked us on September 11th was dead, obviously. They crashed, they, you know, they went down in the planes. Mm-hmm. Anybody that aided and embedded them had been captured or killed in the first six months of the war. By February of 2002, that mission was accomplished. Right. So then the, the last part of the authorization that was that sent us to Afghanistan was to hunt and kill Osama bin Laden, which we were actively doing. We were tracking his cell phone calls while we were there. We knew we knew um, that he was in Afghanistan or possibly just across the border in Pakistan. And then the other part of the mission was to destroy or disrupt the terror training camps that were that were in Afghanistan. And that was done. So literally we're flying these missions um, where we're rounding up people. Uh, based on faulty intelligence, we're, we're rushing them off to Kabul, where they were um, interrogated and put on an airplane and sent to, sent to Guantanamo Bay. And uh, so our mission changed, and instead of taking the fight to these insurgents and these enemies, uh, we became a nation builder. We started assisting with what was called provincial reconstruction teams. We were building roads and water treatment plants. And I mean, I wasn't physically swinging a hammer or paving a road, but that, we were there supporting those efforts. Uh, we were watching schools be built, and we were we were helping secure polling places during the first national election. We uh, we did all kinds of things that weren't part of the authorization of use of military force that was signed by Congress in 2001. That's that gave us the authority to go to Afghanistan. And the reason that mission creep happened, the way the reason that 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 developed into a non-war fighting effort is because there was no oversight. There was none. There wasn't a declaration of war, so nobody had to truly stand up and say, hey, I authorize this war as a representative of Congress, and it's not being waged properly. Once they gave that the authorization of use of military force, Congress was able to wipe their hands and, and you know, it was somebody else's problem. And so we became part of um, the pre-surge. We became part of the hearts and mind mission. We became part of bottom up. We became part of top down. We became part of um, training Afghan police forces. We became part of creating an Afghan national army. We did all these things that weren't part of being an aviation attack helicopter battalion. Mm-hmm. And at that point was when I started really 
um, seeing the boondoggle and the waste and the fraud and the corruption and uh, recognizing that we were fighting an enemy with the Department of Defense assets, the military, um, and that same enemy that we were fighting was an ally of the defense contractors. You know, they were paying off the Taliban with United States taxpayer money uh, for their own protection. And then the Taliban was turning around and fighting us uh, with the money they received from, from our own CIA and, and defense contractors. And so we started really seeing a problem um, in, in the, the way we waged and managed that war. And uh, that, that happened about probably halfway through our combat deployment. Okay. And well, now, now that the United States has, uh, has signed a peace deal with the Taliban and then like we already attacked them just shortly after, um, I've, I've been hearing a lot of people say that, I mean, just people who would like to stay in Afghanistan, they are, they're arguing kind of like, well, we need to be almost like the skeleton for Afghanistan. We need to keep them standing so that no one like fills in the gaps when we leave. Do you, what, what's your argument against that? Yes, yeah, it's, it's the vacuum theory, right? That mm-hmm. if we leave, something else will occupy that space. Right. Well, that, that, that vacuum has, has existed in Afghanistan for centuries, for millennia, and it's going to exist there for centuries more. Um, there's never going to be a good time to leave Afghanistan. And so now is as good a time as any. Before one more American soldier, before one more Marine, before one more airman or one more sailor comes home in a body bag, now is the time to leave because it, there's not, not one American death is worth the failure not the military failure, but the failure in strategy, the failure in policy, and the failure to have a cohesive um, idea of what we're doing there. The Afghanistan papers that came out in December really, really support this theory, uh, not a theory, a belief, um, uh, that the, the generals that have waged the war and the politicians and the um, uneffect, uh, unelected government diplomats have failed the military. They failed the American people because they refused to put together a single cohesive, lasting strategy and plan. And without that strategy and plan, all we're doing over there is exercising tactics. Right. And uh, that, that is a good way to get a lot of Americans and a lot of Afghani civilians killed when you don't have a strategy. Right. And so my, my, my answer to that would be, yeah, we leave now, and it's going to be as bad now as it, ever, it would be if we left in 10 years. Right. I mean, the problem with Afghanistan is they've always been decentralized. And I mean, if we're trying to build something up there, it's just counter to anything that they've ever had yeah um, they don't want to they do, they do not want or recognize a vertical form of government like we would we would want them to have right. most afghanis don't recognize or identify as afghani citizens mm-hmm. they recognize and identify as the tribe that they belong to right and uh, that it's just a different mindset and you can't give somebody something that they just don't want right um no i find it interesting uh i i, I was i was doing some research and um Veterans really support this. There's there's this uh, there's this mentality that the conservative position or or the pro military position is the one where we have a strong military in in all of these countries. But but I find it interesting. I Ron Paul received the most funding out of all veterans um, when he ran. Uh, I believe Tulsi Gabbard now has received has taken that place. She's she's receiving more funding from veterans than any other candidate right now. And I'm assuming Donald Trump probably received quite a bit when he campaigned on um, this anti-war position. Uh, do you do you find a lot of veterans are reaching out to you about this? Yeah, we uh, our, our organization obviously is targeted directly towards veterans, right? And 
we hear it every day um, that um, veterans, those with actual skin in the game, those that are called on to to carry out the orders of uh, of, of the the generals and the politicians, they're the ones that are most anti-war because they've been there, they've done that, they've seen it, and uh, we're the ones that come on with the injuries, the mental scars. Uh, the divorces, the bankruptcies, the um, inability to reintegrate into society. And so we obviously are tired of it. And and those problems compound and get worse every time we go back. And there's members of the of the National Guard here in the Northwest United States that are seven, eight, nine, ten time combat tour uh, deployed. The National Guard, 10 tours in a 19 year long war. Um, that's not the role of the military and great nations, like President Trump said in his 2019 stadium address, great nations do not fight endless wars. And so that poll that you're talking about, the, the, the funding from or the campaign donations from veterans, uh, the headline of uh, the, the story, I think I saw it, it was in the New York Times, said that Democrats outraise Republicans in anti-war donations from, from veterans. Mm-hmm. And if you drill down into the story, it's not until the very end where they talk about the bulk majority of all the donations going to the D- the Democratic candidates um, from veterans went to Tulsi Gabbard. It didn't. They didn't go to Bernie. They didn't go to to Biden. They didn't go to Bloomberg. They went to Tulsi. Right. And it's not because she is any more socially liberal. It's not because she was different th- than any of the other candidates on Medicaid or healthcare or borders or anything like that. It was because she was stood. She stood alone in her position on being non-interventionist and not fighting regime change wars, which is her buzzwords. Mm-hmm. And veterans identified with that. The second leading, um, uh, second candidate that received the most uh, in-kind contributions from veterans was Donald Trump. And he obviously ran in 2016 on an anti-war or ending the forever war campaign promise. And in fact, there's a study that came out just a couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe it's two months ago by now, that identified Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin as the state's obviously most critical to electing President Donald Trump. And the reason they swung in his um, direction was because of his anti-war um, position and promises. And those three states um, on, here's, here it is right here, it's the study's called Battlefield Casualties and Ballot Box Defeat. Um, it, they, those three states specifically were most affected in a casualty rate per capita than any other state in the country. And if that doesn't tell you that that veterans are opposed to these forever wars, I don't know what would. I mean, that those three states specifically elected President Trump to be the the president. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think? I mean, now now that he's signed um, this Taliban deal, do you think that there are more people, more veterans surrounding around him again? Now that there's kind of like this, he's taking that position back. Yeah, I. I the, the Taliban deal uh, is the Doha deal is what they're calling it, I think is the, the official uh, nomenclature but it, it was a it was a fantastic moment I was in uh, DC when he signed it we were at uh, CPAC with bring our troops home um, and there was veterans everywhere right I, I think veterans and were the most easily recognizable group that were there uh, they had vets for Trump shirts on uh, you know they were in the army service caps you could you could identify them mm-hmm. and uh, when he gave his line in his speech, um, Saturday afternoon about the Doha deal and that it was finally time to end these ridiculous wars and bring our troops home. The veterans stood. The veterans were the first ones to stand up and, and, and give a standing ovation for that specific line in the, in the speech. And it wasn't until the veterans stood up and people looked around and realized that, oh my gosh, it's the men and women that are fighting these wars that support this position. Then 
the swell grew in the crowd and eventually everybody stood up and it was out of a kind of a mutual applause line, you know, obviously clapping for the president's peace deal, but also supporting the veterans who were boldly standing up now and doing what veterans typically don't do. And that stand up and question um, the, the authorities that sent us to war. Um, is there is there any concern now that, I mean, we've attacked the Taliban since the deal? Is there any concern that something might happen that keeps us there? Sure, always, absolutely. It's not done until it's done, right? Okay. And um, part of the deal is that uh, it's a conditions-based uh, a deal, that the Taliban has to stop attacking the United States and NATO and allied forces, and they have to stop their, their uh, violence against the Afghan National Army and Afghan assets that are trying to defend and, and help create this new Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And if they can't honor their part of the deal, then you know ultimately the deal fails. Right. But instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and calling the deal off right now because of a skirmish that happened in the Helmand province, um, President Trump has once again shown amazing restraint. And instead of just having his temper tantrum and you know wrinkling up the, the bill and th- or the peace deal and throwing it in the trash, mm-hmm. he has said, hold on, calmer heads, let's retaliate, let's, let's send in air support, and let's put down this attack, right? Let's stop the violence, and let's get back to the table and keep talking. Right. And that takes tremendous restraint. And I, I don't think we would have that restraint in the White House if, if we had, we're looking at a President Clinton right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's pretty concerning. I I know I remember I talked to Scott Horton a little bit ago in another interview, and something he said was about how uh, the the people who attacked us on nine eleven would they want us to be there? They want us to be there because they've got us where they can kill our soldiers. Um, they've got us where where we're weak. You know, do you? Do you think that the Taliban is almost do do they want this deal? Do they want us to leave? So I I think um, and Osama bin Laden has been quoted as saying that his mission was to bring down the empire, bring down the United States from the inside by bankrupting us, by spending right. us into destruction. And I think he's probably smiling from his watery grave right now that we are still there after 19 years spending billions of dollars um, fighting people that throw rocks. Right. And, uh, and so the, the Taliban, um, we, we use that word almost incorrectly. And I want to be careful about, you know, the definitions we use, you know, words have meanings. Mm. Um, the Taliban is not who we went there to fight. They happen to be the oppressive government that was there when we, when we invaded the country, we went there to fight members of Al Qaeda and eventually what became um, ISIS and ISIL and the the members of uh, the the different terrorist organizations that were coming into Afghanistan. The Taliban, um, we use that word almost interchangeably, and so we have to be very careful. The Taliban is nothing more than their um, identified self government um, right. there. It's not the democratic government that we helped um, install. It's the government that rules the local communities. It's the religious values that they live by, um, that rules their tribes and and where they live in the in the mountainous regions. It's it's something that we can't identify with, and so we we fight them and we call them the Taliban, and it makes a good soundbite. Um, but the Taliban is not an organized organized structure, but they do rule and provide um, a foundation and a basis for the Afghanistan people. And so the reason they're involved in the peace deal is because they are the recognized um, pseudo government of most of the rural areas of Afghanistan. And so do, do I think the Taliban want us there? No, I don't. And in fact, right before we invaded in 2001, 
the Taliban offered to hand over any terrorists that they had in their in their country, including Osama bin Laden, if we simply would provide evidence that he had coordinated the attacks and we we, we promised not to bomb their country back into you know the Stone Ages. Mm. And uh, we live by the Bush doctrine, and at the time, I think it was proper, it was right, that we will not negotiate with terrorists. And you know, as for them asking for proof of of his involvement, we saw that as a negotiation, and we refused their offer. And we sent in, uh, you know, the, the CIA first, and then um, soldiers like uh, Don Bulldog, who was one of the first horse soldiers going into Afghanistan in 2001. And uh, we then we waged you know full war and all without a congressional declaration of war. Right. And so now we're now we're negotiating with the very people that off tried to negotiate with us 19 years ago. Um, seems a little. Um, what's the definition of insanity? Right. As doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Right. Uh, well, we we've changed that. It's it's refusing to do something one time and then after you know thousands of deaths and trillions of dollars going back to that very same thing and hoping that it's the way to end the war. Um, and it's it's been a mistake, and I think um, finally reaching out to them and sitting down at the table with them is the right thing to do. And, and again, I think President Trump has shown bold leadership by doing that. So when the U.S. military said that um, the Taliban attacked us, uh, just in this last incident where we where we stopped, um, where we sent in the missiles and stuff like that, were they were they not necessarily Taliban, or like which who were they associated with then? No, that's a great question. I don't know who was involved in the attack, and and, right. and anybody that attacks, you know, the Afghan National Army right now, or, or any of the um, local Afghan National Police, or any asset that we've identified as friendly, um, any attack that comes in, it's going to be identified as Taliban, okay. uh, because they're the ones that are controlling and allowing people like these Chechen insurgents and people from Pakistan and from Uzbekistan to come into their country and wage these wars, and so they're identified as Taliban, but. Um, again, it's not. I don't think it's a proper definition. Right. Um, and 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 if by the Taliban allowing these things to happen, they're they're in a sense violating the Doha deal. Okay, so we just call them Taliban, but it could literally be anyone who's upset with the U.S. government. Sure, we call every insurgent in that country Taliban. Okay. Um, and and you know, an insurgent is another word that that is probably misused a lot. An insurgent is nothing more than you know a member of the local population of an occupied country rising up and saying enough is enough. Right. You know, that's what an insurgent is. So it could be you know a, a baker, it could be a goat herder, it could be a child. Anybody that then raises arms against an oppressor or an occupier becomes a quote unquote insurgent. Right. I I do think um, it, it's pretty interesting. Uh, if if the same thing were to happen here, you know, they they make a lot of parallels with the Vietnam War. Um, that they were inspired by our revolution, um, and I think I think that that's super interesting because if it was if it was going on in our backyard, I think there would be some bakers. I think that there there would be those people who would probably take arms against that force. And it's sad because um, the people back home are the ones who sent them there, and the soldiers uh, the soldiers just shined, um, signed up to protect their country. Correct. Yeah. I mean, we, we have a history of being an insurgent force in the United States of America, right? We kicked the British out. In fact, we've even got a, a, a constitutional right that says that we have the freedom from quartering soldiers in our in our homes. Right. Right. And so if, like you said, if someone were to invade America, and let's just say in my backyard here in Boise, Idaho, um, if someone were to invade the Mountain Home Air Force Base, which is 45 minutes away, what would the members of the Idaho uh, population do 
to repel that, that, that occupying force, what would we do? Right. We, we grab all of our hunting rifles and our pistols and we go down to the gun shop and buy all the ammunition and we, we drive 45 minutes out into the desert and do whatever it took to, to remove that occupying force and we would be an insurgency. We would be the insurgents trying to remove them. And uh, so I understand it. I, I, that doesn't make it okay. And I don't feel like it makes them morally justified to, to kill my brothers and sisters in, uni- in, our, in right. uniform. Um, but let's call it what it is. Right. You know, these are goat herders and citizens of Afghanistan that are just rising up and saying, you know, it's time for you to get out of our country. So I know that I know that you guys are really concerned with bringing back power from the executive. Um, and, you, you know, there was the War Powers Resolution and the the AUMF can can you speak on where we're at with the authorization of military forces is there still a move to get rid of them yeah there's always gonna be a move to get rid of it and this year in the 19th year it finally passed you know obviously the 2001 AUMF sent us to Afghanistan the 2002 AUMF sent us to Iraq right and for the first time we finally got it passed in both houses to to remove that AUMF and expire it and sunset it uh, which would do two things. It would require either the military to come home immediately from those those locations or require Congress to re-debate it, rediscuss it, and reauthorize the war. And that's our position is that reauthorizing is not the right words. You know, like I said earlier, words matter. If we're going to stay there and we're going to fight these combat operations, I, I believe we should expire the UMF and require Congress to declare war in order to keep us there. Right. And uh, a declaration of war changes everything. It changes the the nature. It changes of the mission. It changes the the state of the nation. Um, it, it makes um, it it requires a forceful oversight with a clear mission with defined goals, and uh, the, a simple authorization of use of military force is nothing more than Congress abdicating their authority to the executive branch of the federal government and basically removing any any. Uh, responsibility from their plate. There's a reason why Congress is the only branch of government uh, to be able to declare war. It's because the founders and the framers of the Constitution wanted the people with that power and authority to wage war and commit the lives and treasure of our country to be accountable to the people in their community. Right. And the executive branch is so removed from from their own community. That's why they put it in Congress's hands. Right. And I think I think that's really why the Defend the Guard Act is so important, especially in these states, is because. You know, Congress was, it goes back to that principle of uh, um, consent of the governed, you know, the anything, the reason why we want Congress to pass these laws is because they represent us. So by passing laws, it's a, it's almost like a, another form of consent on behalf of us. But since that's not happening, I think that it's really interesting because um, the Defend the Guard Act almost brings that closer to home. It allows that consent and that representation closer at home in Idaho or in Montana. I really think that states would would benefit from this. So is have, has there been any um, movement to get into any other states? What can we do to get it in, like, Montana's legislature? Yeah, we're working with, with folks in Montana right now, and uh, if people want, want to help... Uh, they can go to defendtheguard.us, uh, defendtheguard.us, and they can sign up for contact information there. Um, we're working you know, with the Tenth Amendment Center. Um, they're the ones that kind of drafted the legislation. Uh, it's, it's their writing, and this is the ultimate Tenth Amendment right. Um, you know, the Tenth Amendment states that any power not expressly given to the federal government resides in the states. And this is the state standing up and saying, 
the power of the, of the National Guard actually was given to the states in the Constitution, right. and we are reclaiming that authority. And so we're working right now, like I said, we've been introduced, I think, in seven states right now. Uh, we believe it's going to be as many as 20 by the end of the legislative session, and the goal is 50 states to have it introduced next year. And it may take a year, it may take two years, it may take five years to get a state to pass this bill. But once it does, we know immediately it's going to be challenged and uh, we'll get it to the Supreme Court where it will become the law of the land once the Supreme Court um, hears the case case and the merits. And uh, with the um, understanding of the Constitution with the justices that are there now, we believe we'll get a majority decision. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Do you want to just tell us where we can find you and uh if you're on social media and stuff like that yep absolutely uh bring our troops home.us is our website at troops home is troops home i'm sorry at troops home us is uh is twitter um we've got a great news feed there we put updates on there almost daily um i would really encourage people to go to bring our troops to home.us sign the contact form for information i'll put you on our mailing list where you'll get our newsletter uh, that comes out once or twice a month. We don't we don't send out a lot of stuff. We don't forward information. It's all unique and germane stuff to us. You know, it's, we write it, we produce it. Um, and, and that'll help us build um, our database of people that we're communicating with because eventually uh, when we get to into different states like Montana, for example, there's gonna be a time where we're gonna need to send out a communication encouraging people to contact their, their representatives in the, in the Montana, uh, North Dakota, Minnesota, uh, state houses and say that you support defend the guard and uh, I know that sounds so small town mm-hmm. but those those calls of support to your legislator help um, legislative districts and especially in rural Montana you know could be as small as 5,000 people um, and one phone call could make a difference in those small districts and so I would encourage people to go to, to either defendtheguard.us or bringourtroopshome.us all right awesome thank you You bet. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, and thank you for your service. You bet. Take care. You too.